This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. When they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the, uh, for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we, uh, what must we do uh, to do the works of God that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Uh, what will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and it is written, as it is written, he gave the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me uh, and you still not do, you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, uh, not to do my will, but to do the one of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lo- uh, lose none of all of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on that last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among you, Jesus said. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at that last day. It uh, It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learnt from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this whilst teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Well done, Vicky. Uh, you see when it's a long reading, we, I hand it out. <laughs> um, yeah, it kind of seems kind of strange, a bit of cannibalism in there. Uh, uh, it's, uh, in fact, the, uh, the early Christians were accused by the Romans of being cannibals because this kind of strange thing of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. Uh, and so that it's a, maybe if you're a visitor, that might be a strange reading to you. Um, we're... Um, we're going to be looking at a series called uh, Jesus Revealed in His I Am Statements, that, uh, or Jesus Is. And um, <clears throat> I guess it raises the question, who is God? Who is God? When we, when we talk about God, or when you say, oh, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God, uh, we all assume that we're pretty much on the same page. We all assume that we all know what we're talking about. Uh, Tom Wright, who's a, a clever chap, uh, written a lot of books. If you want the clever books, they're called N.T. Wright. And if you want the books that I read, they're called Tom Wright. But he was a chaplain of an Oxford college, I think. And uh, each fresher had to have an appointment with him. So if you're in a fresher, I don't think they do that here. But but they um, they had to have an appointment with him. And some students kind of were basically be, uh, quite reluctant to go and meet this chaplain and said, look, you know, you're not going to see much of me uh, because, you know, I don't believe in God. And he would say to them, oh, that's interesting. What kind of God don't you believe in? And they would describe this killjoy, tyrant, misery guts, kind of fun-spoiling God who'd burst into fits of anger. And Tom Wright would say, oh, well, that's great, because I don't believe in that kind of God either. And they would kind of scratch their heads and a conversation would ensue. And I think sometimes we can say, well, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God, and we're not really clear what we're talking about. And so this series is a part of a way to say, okay, what is God like? Jesus has revealed God. What is he like? But some philosophers over the centuries have, gra- have g- grappled with this thought of, of trying to name God. So some people you have heard of and seen people that I clearly looked up in a book. Uh, a Greek philosopher called Plato called him the great geometrician. In other words, he likes his geometry. Uh, I guess he was looking at the design in the universe. Aristotle called him the prime mover. A German called George Hegel named him the absolute. Uh, UK thinker Herbert Spencer gave him the name unknowable. He obviously decided, well, it's impossible to name him, so I'll call him the unknowable. And Julian Huxley uh, dismissed him as the fading smile of a ch- smug Cheshire cat. And so basically everyone's thought, well, what is God like? And everyone's had a go at having a stab at it. But we want to really drill into what uh, God was like. And uh, before any of these philosophers were born, there's a guy called Moses. Now, the story of Moses is that he was brought up as a prince of Egypt, so he read all the kind of philosophy of Egypt and the stuff of the day, uh, but actually ended up running away from Egypt and being uh, ended up as a shepherd. While he's shepherding, uh, he sees this burning bush. Um, and that, that basically, that, that what drew him to the burning bush, he was incredibly curious, I guess, because what drew him to the burning bush was that the bush was burning, but it wasn't burnt. In other words, there was fire, but the, the, the bush wasn't getting black or burnt. And he, and he was quite curious about this. And so he, he drew close to the bush, and he hears God speak to him out of the bush, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place we are standing is holy ground. 
Then God said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. Then God said to Moses, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of their captors, to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of slavery. Moses said to God, suppose I go to them and uh, uh, say that God has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say that I am has sent you. And this is almost like the first time that God tells you his name. Uh, he's the first time that he says, I am. This is my name. I am who I am. And in a sense, it, that name says that God is eternal. He's, he's always constant, always present, always now. He's never had a past or a future. He's always now, eternally now. He's unchanging. His I am is self-determining. Uh, I find it interesting sometimes uh, that people like that song by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And they often have it at funerals. Uh, and the implication is that we are self-determining individuals, human beings. We can do what we want when we want. But that's not true. The very fact that you need to eat, the very fact that you are born of someone else means you're not a self-existent person. But yet God is I am. He's self-existent. He's before creation. He's beyond creation. He's not part of creation. And that song that we sang last week that I love, he's got no equal, no rival. But yet, interestingly, it says about this God that's eternal, that's beyond creation, it says this wonderful words. It says, I have heard the suffering of my people, and I'm concerned for them, and I've come down to rescue them. Right in that little phrase, as God introduces himself, we get an idea of God is, who God is like. He's this amazing, eternal, awesome being who created all things and needs nothing. He's self-contained as Father, Son, and Spirit, but yet he is people's cries, here's people's sufferings. And it says wonderfully, doesn't it, I have come down to rescue them. You can often think about God as far away, the, the idea of his deism, that he's far away and he's not involved in creation. And, and, and the, the Allah is probably like that, he's a deist, he's far away, doesn't get involved in mucky creation. But God listens and hears and comes down. So right there we have that brilliant I am. And it's from those, from those letters I am that we get the, the, Jew, uh, the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H, which actually they stuck the vowels in from, from uh, God Almighty and they made Yahweh. So that word Yahweh, uh, God Yahweh, it's a great song by you too, as well as the name of God, uh, actually t- is the name I am. And so we can read that and it's basically saying Yahweh. So when we go through John's Gospel, which he's going to do for the next six or seven weeks, off and on, we're going to, um, as we go through John's Gospel, we're going to find that actually this, these words, I am, are on Jesus' lips. And when he says something, we're going to find something about God. We're going to find that Jesus is saying, I am the eternal God, but I am also the God who rescues and saves. And we're going to find that in lots of different ways. Uh, and so that, that's where we, that's where we're going this morning. And I do really hope that as we uh, step into this, that we'll have, maybe have some of those Moses moments where we take off our shoes. I mean, for some of you, that would probably not be recommended. But, you know, but we take off our shoes and think, God is here. 
God is here. There's a sense where God has revealed himself to us. Lord, we do pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, we want to know who you are. Lord, thank you that we're not scratching in the dark like philosophers thinking up what God might you be like. But thank you, Jesus, that you have come and revealed yourself to us. I pray as we look this morning at you being the bread of life, I pray that we taste and see afresh how good you are. Amen. So that was my little intro to the series, and then let's pile in. So we'll jump into John 6. It was a long reading, uh, and we're looking at Jesus as the bread of life. And what happens is the, the Jews, uh, the big crowd of Jews, are looking for Jesus. Uh, it's the day after the feeding the 5,000. Basically, the feeding the 5,000 uh, was feeding, actually, of more like 20,000. It was a, quite a patriarchal society. They only counted the men who were heads of family. So let's just do that this morning. So if you're married... Uh, and with kids, put up your hand. So we've got about... Oh, and a man, sorry, Yana, yes. Married, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So the attendance this morning would be seven, okay? But we know it's more like 80 or 90. And so it's interesting, in that crowd, 5,000 heads of families, men with kids, that's what you've got. So the reality is you've probably got a heck of a lot more, Okay. Just a little survey that we did there. Sorry, I didn't specify man and woman, but I'm not a patriarch, you know, so. Okay, but we get an idea. There's about fifteen to 20,000 people, and they followed Jesus around a lake from the, the, the west side, which is where it was populated, Capernaum, and they followed him around the lake to what the area we now call the Golan Heights. Um, and they'd followed him there, and it's probably a day's journey, about 30 miles walk around. It's 10 miles across, about 30 miles round the lake. And they'd gone there and been hearing about Jesus, and then Jesus had said, look at, said to Philip, one of his disciples, look at all these people here, somebody needs to give them something to eat. And Philip says, don't be ridiculous, you know, this is, tw- it's going to take eight months wages to do this, where are we going to get the food, it's a day's journey, you know, what are you talking about? And he, he says to his disciples, come on, you give them something to eat. And it says, actually, John writes, he says, he was just saying that just to get them to look at the impossible nature of the situation, get them to realise God had already got it in hand. And so what happens is, you know the story, because if you ever went to Sunday school or you ever taught at, at school or whatever, you know the story, a boy with five barley loaves, barley loaves were like the cheapest loaves, it's like pita breads. So wheat flour, this is what we all have, I know some of you are gluten-free, but wheat flour actually is nice bread. Barley bread is kind of dry, papery bread. It's not very nice. And there were like two probably dried fish. And Andrew says, oh, there's a boy here with a lunch. Let's feed him. You know the story. Jesus uh, prays over the bread and the fish. He blesses it and then he gives it out to the people. And the people, 20,000 people get fed from this boy's lunch and they collect 12 baskets of scraps. So that's the background. They've been, they're looking for him, and, and actually they've all gone home after this uh, incident, and they think, well, well, where's Jesus? And they find him in the town of Capernaum. So Jesus was on the, uh, the eastern side, and, he find, and they find him on the western side, and they're scratching their heads and say, how on earth did he get there? He hasn't got a boat. He didn't have a boat. And they were all walking, the 20,000 of them were all walking home, and they didn't see him either. Now, the interesting, if you read the story of John, but they didn't know, is that Jesus had walked across the water. But he doesn't tell them. I don't know if I was, if, if I was you, uh, or sorry, if, if I was God, uh, which is a big stretch, I know, for a lot of you, uh, but um, 
if I was God, if I'd walked across the water, I'd say, oh, don't worry, guys, I just walked across the water. But he doesn't tell them that. He's not really interested in telling them that because he's not trying to... Uh, uh, he's not trying to communicate, oh, I can do amazing things. Because the very reason that they're following him is because they had their, they, they had their stomachs filled. And he didn't, they don't realise that the, that, that the stomach being filled was pointed to something bigger. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's really interesting that they, they don't see what Jesus is actually doing. They just think, oh, I've got a, you know, I'm poor and I've got a free lunch. There's something that they just said, I want my needs met. And I don't know about, about you, but actually, often if you watch God TV, uh, if you do, or you watch that kind of stuff, often the implication is that, oh, you come to God and he's going to meet all your physical needs. That, that, that's what's going to happen. He's going to meet all your physical needs. And, um, and it's not that Jesus isn't interested in meeting physical needs. You know, Jesus obviously meets the needs of these hungry 10,000, 20,000 people. He's interested in meeting your physical needs. But the bottom line is that when he meets our physical needs, he's always pointing to something else. He's always pointing to something else. And, and, and they kind of missed... They missed the signposts. They, they, they didn't realize that actually that God had, that Jesus had fed them with these five loaves and fish was a signpost to something else. So he says, uh, you only after me because you know I did a miracle. And actually, hunger and thirst is interesting. It's interesting that the miracle of, about food is, um, is, it was significant because hunger and thirst is built into our bodies to remind us to eat. If you're a Labrador, I've got a half a Labrador, a Labradoodle, but if you're a Labrador, you, 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 you are, I, I think a Labrador must be hungry all the time. Because they just eat whatever, don't they? They don't think, no, I'm not very full. I'm very full today. Oh, I've just had my lunch. That, whatever you give them, they'll eat. And so I don't know if dogs ever feel hungry or not. I don't know if they think, oh, I am hungry. Probably they're not. Let's not get into that. But, but they eat all the time. But we, hopefully, are not like that. We obviously, we have times when we feel hungry, and there's times when we feel full. But food and drink, you know, almost like that hunger is built into our bodies to do that. But actually, in our well-fed culture, we don't, we've forgotten the equation between food and living. Yeah? For me, food is about comfort eating, sorry sometimes, or food is about, oh, I've just got to have that steak, or I've got to have that. And food becomes all about meeting our needs. And we've lost that separation between food, and if you don't have food, you starve. I remember the, the first big uh, famine uh, in the 1980s uh, in Ethiopia that prompted the live aid Stuff Bob Geldof and all that. Uh, you, some of your parents will know what it is, uh, but you know, and and the the scenes of the of the people starving, trekking. It said you know tre- it, the guy who did it, Michael Burke, t- talked about them trekking. You know, days and days and days just for food. We've lost that connection between food and life. But these guys understood that. But the thing about food is, it's also designed to remind us that we're not self-sufficient. You know, God is self-sufficient, self-existent, doesn't need anything. We are not. I say this often. Often if you've been at my house and I say grace, I always, I don't say, um, I do kind of tend to preach a little bit in graces, don't I, I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't kind of say, oh, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, you know, whatever. 
there's something about food that says, I am not self-sufficient. And when you thank God for the food, it's actually what you're saying is not, thank you, Nazi, that's really nice what we had, you know, that stew was lovely or whatever it was. What you're saying is, I am not self-sufficient. I need food from the outside. And that is a sign that you need something else from the outside. And often we don't make that little jump. We don't make that jump from, I need food because I'm not self-sufficient to, I need something, someone from the outside. God. And so they missed the signpost. They missed the signpost. And so Jesus feeding the multitude is a signpost of something deeper in us. It's a signpost of spiritual hunger in the human heart that can never be satisfied by anything else but God. And we kind of nod our heads at this point, but the reality is, I want to challenge you this morning, do you live that way? Because I can say, yes, there's no, only God can satisfy my ultimate hunger. But when you look at my life, and if you could see my thoughts, you'd think, is that really how I live? I'm just like the crowd. Give me my next thing. Uh, Augustine, whose picture is sort of here, that's the coolest one I could find, obviously, pre-photographs. Augustine of Hippo, so he's obviously from Africa. Um, And he said this, Lord... You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's a sense of hunger, there's a sense of restlessness in us that only finds its home in God. And and if you read uh, psychology magazines, which I don't recommend you do unless you're actually studying it, but um, the psychologists would talk about what are we hungry for? We're hungry for meaning. We feel the kind of endless routine and of, of life. We're hungry for significance. One of the whole things about Freshers' Week, my daughter's just done Freshers' Week, the whole thing about Freshers' Week is you're trying to show somebody, look, I'm somebody. I'm amazing. And then when you have those moments where you feel like, oh, I've got no friends, you know, because it's new, and you think, oh, I don't know anyone. And then you have those moments you are out and you feel like, oh, I've made loads of new friends. And that's a, a, this hunger to sense a belong and a hunger for, for significance. We all, all are hungry for love. But we have this endless hunger, but we never have enough. We're never satisfied. There's, there's a sense where everything that we have uh, doesn't quite meet our needs. Jesus presses this point when he talks about food. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus doesn't want us doing that empty cycle of chasing stuff. This is kind of how it works. So think about working and having a car. Some of you think, that would be nice. Some of you think, yeah, I've got two. But, so what do you do? So you go to work, so you've got enough money to pay your bills and whatever, and, and buy a car. So you've got a car, and then you have a car so that you can drive to work on in the mornings and go do your job. And so you do your job so you've got enough money to replace your car. Does that track? Or here's another one, this endless cycle that never gets filled. We work so we can buy, and we feel exhausted, but we work and feel exhausted so we can buy a nice holiday, so that actually we can rest, so that after the summer's over and September starts, we can all go back to work again. 
And that's the kind of endless cycle of stuff that food that spoils. It's, it's stuff that doesn't last, stuff that wears out. And when God said, when He says to them, don't, you don't want that kind of food, the, the, the Jews said to Him, well, can I, what kind of work should we, what should we work for then? If you don't work for this stuff that's kind of here and gone, that doesn't last forever, what should we do? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who sent him. To believe in the one he has sent, sorry. This is the work of God, to believe in the one he sent. So the work that, that Jesus says to them to do is, you need to believe in God. Don't get caught up with this material stuff, you need to believe in God. And actually, that isn't even work. Believing in God is believing in what Jesus has done. It's believing in what Jesus has done. It's not believing in, it's actually not working for anything. They think, oh, I'm going to have to work for something else. And it's interesting that the Jews then are kind of processing this and they say, okay, give us a sign that we can believe in you. I don't know, if I was Jesus, I'd be slapping my head at this point and saying, give us a sign. Weren't you there yesterday when you all ate, like, 10,000 of you ate from this boy's lunch and you, you want a sign. You know, what, why do you want a sign? And it's this kind of obsession with, well, we want a sign, then we'll believe. I don't know if you've ever seen, it's a bit old now, Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and, the, and the guy that plays Pilate is always, a, he'd probably be a James Corden sort of figure now, wouldn't he? But the guy that played Pilate, is, he's, um, he sings a song that says, if you are the Christ, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're no fool walk across my swimming pool, yeah? If you're the Christ, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're divine, turn my water into wine. And there's this kind of sense where Andrew Lloyd Webber, I don't believe he's a Christian, but he's basically saying, why do we always want a sign? And the crazy thing is, they'd had a sign, and they'd driven right by. They'd had a sign, and they'd driven right by. And I think sometimes maybe they're, they're thinking about, oh, what can we think about a sign? Maybe because they'd had food, they didn't realise it was a sign. So they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 5,000 years, uh, 1,500 years before Jesus, uh, Moses had led the people out, uh, of Israel out of promised land. So after he encountered God at the burning bush, he goes into Israel, into Egypt, sets Israel free. There's all plagues and stuff. And God, and then a final Passover, God sets them free. And they get into the desert and they start to moan and grumble that they need food. And God provides them with a stuff called manna. Which actually, I think I was told at Sunday school, means, what is it then? I mean, it literally means, well, what is it then? It's kind of like this, I don't know, what, what, I, mean, I haven't seen manna, no one's seen manna, I guess you can't restore it, because actually the thing was, the next day it rotted into some kind of maggoty old thing. And what they had to do, they had to go out, it's probably like, cotton but you'd eat it I don't know you'd go out and, and they'd gather this stuff but you couldn't eat it at first what you had to do you had to get a, a, a pestle and mortar some of you got those in your kitchen if you're posh you get a pestle, pestle and mortar the rest of us just bite in a tin that we're already ground up but if you, you know you pestle and mortar and you'd have to grind this this manna and then it turned into this really sweet bread they had to crush this manna in a, a pestle and mortar and this was like the amazing miracle they say, Moses did this amazing miracle. He made manna come down from heaven that was incredibly sweet. And I'm thinking, don't they realise what's gone on? But clearly they didn't. Jesus at this point thinks, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase. 
So we read the middle of the passage. He says, very truly, when Jesus says very truly, it doesn't mean I was lying last time. Do you know, I've got a friend who says, to be honest, a guy called Pete, lives in London, you guys know him. He always says, to be honest. And I say to him, well, were you not honest last time? And I think, he's not saying that. He's not saying, well, I was dishonest last time and now I'm being honest. What he's saying is, I re- this is really, really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up, this is very important. And Jesus says this twice in this passage. It's a long bit, I'll read the middle of it. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But, but, I, but as I told you, you saw me and you didn't believe. And a bit later on in the same uh, section he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up. He's talking about life that lasts forever. Raise them up at the last day. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the world. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. And he says again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and will not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, this is now what you've been looking for. I am what you've been looking for. That I am the true bread that gives life. Your ancestors ate this bread, gathered it each day, but still they died. And you want a miracle. I'm offering you a miracle. I'm saying, if you put your trust in me, it says, if you, one phrase says, if you come to me and believe in me, you'll live forever. And Jesus is saying, this is the answer to your spiritual emptiness. This is the answer to your hunger. This is the answer to the unquenching discontent in your heart. And, and he's, and he's saying that this is a life and death moment. It's saying, for those who believe in me will live forever, but if you don't, you'll die. We, we sort of did this, we're trying to explain it at 321, which is this course about um, introduction to Christianity. And I sort of said, well, if God is the source of all life, but if this is God, uh, and then to be with God, to be close to God, be united with God is life, but death then is to step away from God. Death is to commit that sort of suicide, to sin against God. And Jesus is saying, look, this isn't just about an interesting story about bread. This is a life and death story. It's really interesting how they respond. The crowd are not impressed. The crowd are not impressed. It says, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How can he now say, I came down for heaven? The problem with that, they didn't believe in Jesus because they're all too familiar with him. Now I'm going to put this in your face. Probably some of you are. You might say, yes, some of you might say, this is an amazing message. That life, all the things I've been searching for and all the things I've been looking for and all the things that I've been dissatisfied, if I give my life to Jesus, I am going to be ultimately full and satisfied. And you're going to go, wow, that's an amazing message. You're going to say it's revolutionary, it's life-changing, its implications are massive. There's something huge about this story. 
But most of you, I suspect, have probably heard the story before. And you probably think, yeah, I know what, I know Jesus is bread of life. Okay, can we move on? Sunday school answer. I know this is the bread of life. And, and we basically are all too familiar with it. You know, we grew up at Sunday school and we know the story. And but what happens is that we just get immune to this. And we hear it, and then and, and what happens is we say, all right, and we don't live as it's true. Can you hear that? Maybe I should make you laugh a bit more and be a bit more entertaining, a bit more kind of prosaic or whatever, and then you're all kind of engaged with me. But there's, some of you are kind of glazed over like, oh yeah, I know this. But the implications of it are huge. The implications that life is found in Jesus are huge. And they're not just huge if you're not a Christian. They're huge if you are a Christian. And if you don't believe it and you just let it glaze over, what happens is when you go out of here, you'll live like everybody else. You'll live to all intents and purposes as if Jesus is not the source of life. Because you can just get immune to it. And part of my job, it's funny, I met some students, we went bowling, I was massively competitive by the way, and, and I lost the first game, but in the second game it was a great finish, and I did say to Johnny that I'd mentioned this. So, so actually, he's not here today, a, a, guy, a guy called Nathan is at the park, he got 118, which isn't a great score in all honesty, uh, <laughs> but he was definitely winning, and then Johnny bowled at the end and got 119, didn't you Johnny? And then, obviously, I bowled at last of all, and I got 120. It's funny how we can satisfy ourselves on suits, foolish things, isn't it? Anyway, but I even forgot what I was saying. What were we talking about? Yes, you you can feel like this doesn't really matter to you. And once this student, Nathan, said to me, you're pretty intense, aren't you? (laughs) I thought, are you talking about my bowling? Oh, you talk, he said, no, your preaching's really intense. But I said to him, part of my job is to wake you up each week. Part of my job is to wake you up. You know, some people I think are scared to talk to me think, man, he's Christ crazy. But no, I, my job is to wake you up. Why? Because I'm falling asleep all the time. I'm wasting my time on stupid stuff. You know, Leeds on telly at 12 o'clock today and I, I'm thinking, flip, 15 minutes, I'm missing the kickoff. You know, how stupid. You know, we're wasting our time on stupid stuff and I need someone to wake me up and say, what are you doing? These things are never going to satisfy you. You know, if you support Arsenal, Andy, it's never going to satisfy you. You know, you're always going to feel frustrated. You know, if you support Man United, you're going to be frustrated, Steve. Because the reality is they win the league, but the next year they're going to be rubbish. You're never going to get satisfied. If you're trying to make yourself look beautiful, men or women, with the this week's fashion, you look great and you think, oh, I'm really straining out my new shirt, didn't wear it this week. And then next week it's like, oh, it's an old shirt, isn't it? And what it just feels like after a few weeks, it, what happens? You always think, what is, does, does the life get washed out of them? But oh, it's just no life in this shirt anymore. I need a new shirt, yeah. Or you think, well, I need to go on this holiday destination, and I go on this holiday destination, and they say, oh, we've been here three years. It's rubbish now, isn't it? And there's that constant battle of empty stuff because we don't live as if Jesus is the bread of life because we're all too familiar with the story. Andy, thank you for saying yes. The crowd at this point are arguing amongst themselves. I think it's always good if, you, if, the, if you're trying to tell people about Jesus and you end up slightly in an argument. Not because it's good because you've annoyed them, but because it means they're emotionally engaged. And that's a lot better than, 
Yeah, I've heard this before. Can we go now? They're emotionally engaged. The crowd are thinking, is this true? Has Jesus really said he's is he the one that's come down from heaven? This is huge. And they're arguing amongst themselves. And Jesus presses the point home, almost to a point of extreme. Let's read it. It says, uh, verse 53, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Imagine the first time you heard that. It says later on, actually, some of the disciples said, this is crazy. We've got to eat this man? Now you all can think, we know. Because we're all rather familiar with what we do here. But actually, Jesus is saying, no, you've got to, you've got to eat me. You've got to drink my blood. What? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. It's about this life and death thing. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains, listen, pick that up, remains in me and I in them. I'll mention that in a minute. Just as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread. In other words, him that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread lives forever. Let's come into land here. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. So what you ate last week is now part of you. You know, let's not go into the details. Some of it makes its way out. But a lot of it, you know, <laughs> you, know you are what you eat. It becomes part of you. You become united with your food. In that, in that sense, ultimately, you become your food. You know, that you, you take this food in, it goes around your body, it's, it works its way into your cells as energy, it's proteins, renew your proteins, it becomes you, you are what you've eaten. And Jesus is, is trying to make that connection, you are what you eat, you're united with your food. And there's a vital life and death nature of being united with Jesus. So he's saying, you've got to eat me because I want this vital connection between you and me. We're to be united together. Theologians call it union with Christ. It's like a marriage that the two become one flesh. It's a different picture. But this is food and the eater becoming one. Jesus says, this is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, hear this, remains in me and I in them. The sense where you take in, and we do it now by when we break bread, when you take in Jesus, his life becomes your life. And you become united with his life. You in him and him in you. That's what happens with the bread. You eat the bread. And here's the thing, how is he going to do it? You kind of know because we go here every week, and I hope you're not too familiar with it. What did they used to do with this manna? They took this manna, this strange what is it kind of food, and they put it in a pestle and mortar and crushed it. Isaiah 53, he writes this about Jesus. He was, say it, crushed for our transgressions. God designed it that way. The bread that came down from heaven, this beautiful, miraculous Christ that takes on human form, that becomes like us, his flesh and our flesh, united together as it were. He's he's taken and he's crushed. 
on the cross. What did Jesus do when he had the five barley loaves or, or slightly less gluten-free bread? <laughs> what did he do? It said he took it and he broke it. He broke it. Jesus' body is broken for us. Jesus, on the, la- on the night where he was betrayed, on, on the night before his crucifixion, he said he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Maybe they'd join the two together. Maybe they'd put the two together. That, that Jesus is the bread of life that's come down. Maybe, maybe they, even when he thought, said the word, I am. Maybe they remembered what Moses had said, that I'm the God who... Hears your suffering, your loneliness, your emptiness, your brokenness. I'm the God who's concerned for your life that's damaged and ruined by sin. And I've come down. I've come down. He's come down so his body is broken, his, his blood shed, so that we can be united with him. As Vic said at the beginning, his His life, our life. His death, our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. This is the story every week because this is a story that really does sustain you. Instead of chasing after other things, this is the story that sustains you. Paul puts it right at the middle of his Gospel, Romans. We did it last term. He says, if... The if is, some are and some aren't. If you're a Christian, then you are. If you're not a Christian, then you're not. The fact is that if you're not feasting on the bread of life, if you're not united with Jesus, you're over here. You're stepped away, desperately trying to fill your life with anything. But the Bible says your life will end in death that goes on forever. It's scary, isn't it? We're too familiar with it. But yet, for Jesus, if we've been united with him... We've taken him in and eaten him and drunk him and his life has become our life. If united with him in a death like this, we'll certainly be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old flesh was crucified with him. So the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. When Jesus is standing on the hillside and saying to uh, uh, give them food, It's not just because he likes a little bit of fast food. What he's saying is the world is broken and nobody should be hungry. I mean, economically nobody should be hungry. Nobody should be spiritually hungry. Nobody should be so desperate that they say, I can't live my life anymore because it's so empty. Jesus looks at that and says, that's not how it should be. We shouldn't be restless and empty and looking for a home. He said, I'm going to feed you so you can find your home in me. So we're going to break bread. Band, why don't you come back? It's interesting. Let me just make one one more observation. Is this enough food for the week? Now, you know the spiritual answer, so don't be silly. Is this enough food for the week? No, it's a kind of morsel, isn't it? But it's a token of a meal that lasts all week. 
It's a token that actually a meal that once you've eaten, you live forever. But you know what? We can treat it like a little morsel. We can come down and take a bit. We can take a little morsel of bread. And it's just that, isn't it? It's just a kind of drive-through happy meal. Nobody ever lives on happy meals, do they? Remember that guy that did the old thing where he supersized me and he just went to McDonald's? He became incredibly unwell. But we can have the... So you only have a happy meal if it's a little top-up, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I just have a little top-up. Yeah, just drive through over McDonald's because it doesn't fill you up, does it? But really what the whole rest of your life is, you're filling your life in other things. And we can come down here, if you're a Christian, you can come and you can say, I'm going to take this bread, and you can see it's just a morsel, and you just take it, and then you go down here and you drop the thing in the pocket, and you go sit back down there, and then you go out as if that isn't the meal that really fills you up. If Jesus isn't really life, but there's other things out there that I'm really chasing to fill me up. It's funny, at the last few weeks, God has been reminding me of quotes in bed. I read this... Uh, in Phil Moore's book about John, it says this. It's a guy called John Piper. If you do not have strong desires, in other words, hunger is a strong desire. Thirst is a strong desire. If you don't have strong desires to taste the goodness of God or to to see God glorified in all things. If, if it's just a little morsel in your life, it's just a little window in your life, you probably won't come to this church, you'd go somewhere where they don't run to you. But you know, if it's just a little morsel in your life, what's going wrong? It said it's not because you've drunk deeply or eaten well and are satisfied, it's because, this, is, this hit me when I, I read it about myself, it's because you've nibbled too long at the table of the world. You've nibbled too long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this, but for an appetite for him. Appetite for him. He says, let it be awakened. I invite you, Turn from the dulling effects of idolatrous emptiness and say, Oh God, I want you. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to come out here and we're going to take bread and wine as a say that his life is our life, his death, our death, his resurrection, our death. But we're doing it as a demonstration that this is not a little morsel sidebar in my life. This is the deep hunger of our lives that says we'll only be satisfied in you. God, I'm hungry for you. Do you feel that? As I read that, do you feel that you've feasted too much at the little tables of the morsels of the life? What, what is it? Too long at the table of the world? As I read that, I thought, God, I'm always hungry for you. There's a sense where you don't need to come back to God because you eat once and you live forever. But there's a sense where you need to come back every day and say, God, I'm hungry for you. You know what? This world is starving to death. We don't come and eat so that we can be smugly filled and grin like a Cheshire cat, as older Julian Huxley says. We come because we have got bread for a world that's hungry. Let's pray. Father, 
Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to fill our emptiness, that we can taste and see that he is good, that you say in Isaiah, come, you've got no money, buy this priceless bread without, without money and without cost. Lord, we thank you that you have offered us life in Jesus. We say, we don't want to be too familiar. We don't want to be miracle chasers. Give me another miracle. Give me another miracle. Lord, we want you. You are the miracle we chase. Lord, we'd love to see healings and transformations and physical needs met in this church more and more. But ultimately, we want you. We're hungry for you. We thirst for you. The Anglicans, as they call people forward, wonderfully say, this is the body of Christ. Feed on him by faith and be thankful. Let's break bread together. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.